All right, basic, what's up? What's up? Can we give it up for Esther again? That's a powerful story. Amen. I don't know where you went. She was over here. Um, so my name is John, and during that whole first set, I was sitting over here, and I was like praying to God to give me an ounce of musical ability or rhythm or style, and he didn't answer the prayer. But I am glad to be here tonight, all right? So my name is John. I work with a group called InterVarsity that's one of the partner ministries that helps to host BASIC. And I serve as the regional director for InterVarsity around the Midwest. And um, I'm, I'm full of expectancy for what God is going to do here tonight, right? It's already been an incredible night. It's been such a privilege to share the stage with John and Breon and Esther. Amen. And I'm excited to try and bring a word to us tonight about God's heart for relationships and God's heart for reconciliation. So last week, we're, we've been in the midst of the series here at BASIC about relationships in four dimensions, relationship with God and what it means to have a relationship with God. Last week, Kelly talked about relationships with ourselves, right? And what she said is that we need to hear who God says we are and then we need to believe it, amen? And tonight, we're gonna talk about others. And what I wanna suggest is that we actually can't love others if we don't love God and love ourselves, right? Just like Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see when we think about these different kind of dimensions of relationships is that these relationships are integrated and they are interconnected. You don't get one without the other, right? And to try and uh, introduce you to some of my favorite relationships, these are, these are a couple of my kids, all right? Or just my, my only two kids. I only have two. I only got two. These are both of them. Both of them are here. Okay, so on the left, that's Abigail. She loves soccer. And this past weekend, I was on daddy duty and she scored her first soccer goal of the season. Yes, thank you. Proud dad, I was like, yes, well done, Abigail, she's seven. And then Elijah, here on the right, has anybody played Yahtzee before? Yeah, okay, so if you played Yahtzee, you got to get like all the dice in a row, right? And Elijah was like rolling in Yahtzee, so he rolled four Yahtzees and scored a 626 in Yahtzee. So we're going to Vegas this weekend with my son, <laughs> my nine-year-old. Now, if you all came to my house... And you're like, John, man, you are awesome. We love you. We like you. We think you're so funny and stylish and all that stuff. But we hate your kids. I, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what would happen. I'd be like, what? Because you can't care about me and not care about my kids. Right? You don't get to choose between me and my kids because I'm with them. And they are with me. And the same thing is true of us spiritually, okay? We cannot embrace God. We cannot embrace the love of God and live in relationship with God and live in enmity and hostility with other people, okay? Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. We can't love God and fail to love his people because he's with us and we're with him. But unfortunately, if there's a word to describe our world today, I would say it is enmity, right? It is hostility. So like many of you, I would, I would guess, like many of you, I've been so grieved in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit about the enmity and the hostility that is all around us in these days. It's like in the air that we breathe. And I would suggest that this hostility has a lot of different expressions, but fundamentally they're all singing the same song. So we hear it globally in heinous acts of terror, like we saw in Belgium or in Turkey in France, Afghanistan, this week, in Syria, in Iraq, we could keep going, right? I would suggest we also hear it nationally right now in a way we haven't heard it in a long, long time. Because in the ways that those who would aspire to lead our country right now 
are shamefully and intentionally cultivating fear and hatred of those people out there, right? And they do it in order to coalesce power for themselves. But if we're honest, we don't just hear it out there. I hear it in here. I hear it in here when my families and my friendships get marked by unforgiveness and animosity. I hear it in here when my communication is punctuated by sarcasm and judgment. I hear it in here when my heart's become a harbor of hatred, of racism, and jealousy. You see, the world in my heart excels at making enemies, but Jesus' invitation is to become neighbors. The world excels at it, is an exce- it does an exceptional job of making enemies, but Jesus' invitation is always to make neighbors. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to look at a story that Jesus told about what it means to become a neighbor, how it is to be a neighbor. And so I want to pray for us because I think that this is a critical word for us, and I think it's a critical word for this community at this time. And I have a friend named James, and what he says is one word from God is better than a thousand sermons. Amen? Right? One word from God is better than a thousand sermons. So I'm going to pray and ask God to speak in this place, and we'll invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you to teach us how to be neighbors again. We have forgotten, and we've become so good at making enemies. It's like our second nature, God. We need you to come and teach us how to be neighbors again. Would you come and do that in this place? Would you come and speak in power, Lord Jesus? We'll give you this night. Amen. Amen. All right. So now I hear that here at Basic, you guys are in the habit of, like, getting out your Bibles, okay? So get out your Bible. And the passage we're going to look at tonight is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'll give you a second to turn there. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It's a familiar passage to a lot of us. This is a story that Jesus told about what it means to be a neighbor. It's a a story that's kind of known as, as as the Good Samaritan. So everybody got it? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It's toward the end. If you've got a phone, you can find it more easily. If you've got a hard copy Bible... Sort of toward the, in the last quarter of the Bible. So let's hear the word of the Lord together here. On one occasion, this is verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And the teacher of the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And just like we just said, love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But, always important to pay, pay attention to that word in the Bible, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus told a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, those are cities in Israel, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, right, a religious professional like me, happened to be going down the road, going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, another sort of really religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's a kind of money, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I'm going to pull out a few points out of the story, but I want to say a few things to get started first. The first thing is we can't miss the social strata in this story, right? So there's a few main characters. There's a priest, there's a Levite, and a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite are Jewish people who are very religious, devoutly religious. And the Samaritan is not a Jew over here, all right? And he's an example of the other, the person that we shouldn't like, the person that we spend time hating, a place of animosity and hostility. And then we have a nameless man who's beaten on the side of the road, and we actually don't know whether he's Jew or Samaritan or Gentile or anything about him except that he's naked on the side of the road. And I want you to notice that the key pivot of this entire text is this, the the teacher of the law who's questioning and testing Jesus, what does he say? And who is my neighbor? And what's the question that Jesus asks at the end of the text? He says, who was a neighbor? Different questions, right? Different questions. Who is my neighbor is a question that I ask about other people to justify my apathy. Who is my neighbor is a question that I ask about other people and say, are they qualified for me to love them or not? But who was a neighbor is a question about me that motivates me to love. So I want to talk about a couple things that I think we learned about neighboring in this spot. The first one, if Jesus was giving a a course, a class here at UNI on what it means to be a good neighbor, I think this is part of what he might say. The first thing he would say is it is about exercising compassion. Being a neighbor is about exercising compassion. Notice that all three characters in the story see the man. The priest sees the man, and what does he do? The Levite sees the man, and what does he do? He walks on the other side. The the, the Samaritan sees the man, and it says he has compassion on him. Now, in this world, right, we've all surely seen pain, enmity, strife, hostility, and when I do, I typically want to look the other way. My response when those things confront my reality is I want to get busy. I want to distract myself or I want to say that's probably their fault. I bet they did that. Something that they did brought that on them. They deserve it. But neighboring, my friends, is not just about seeing but responding with compassion. Neighboring invites us to not look away but instead look deeper. So I want to tell a story about this. One of the ways I've been learning this in my own life Some of you guys are maybe familiar with the Black Lives Matter movement that sprung up in Ferguson, Missouri and down in St. Louis a couple years ago. And when that started springing up, I was like, whoa, I don't get this. I'm a white kid from Iowa. I've lived in Iowa my whole life. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't understand this. This is different than my experience. I'm confused by what's happening. And I went through a lot of my typical responses with that. I wanted to get busy. I wanted to get distracted. Or I wanted to blame the people for what was happening down there, right? And the temptation in that spot is, those are all of my temptations, but the invitation from Jesus was to lean in. To lean into the dissonance and exercise compassion in that place. So what I did is I was like, I need to go down there. So I went down and I connected with my friend Choma, who's a Nigerian-American woman who grew up in New York City and cares deeply about the city of St. Louis. And I was like, Choma, will you, will you show me around this place? Will you take me around this place? Will you help me learn about this place that feels like I don't understand or I don't know what's going on in this spot? And so we went and we prayed down in Ferguson. We prayed on Florissant and we prayed down Canfield where Michael Brown was shot. And we prayed as it rained underneath the hood of a laundromat and we asked God to say, Jesus, would you do something new in our country in these days? 
that would renew sort of the conflict that we're seeing in this place, that you would bring people together, that we would become neighbors again. See, the invitation for me when I experienced the dissonance of that was to lean in, not look away. So when we see, friends, because it's not hard, every, you will see it tomorrow. You will see things that will beg for your compassion tomorrow. When you see it, don't look away. Lean in and say these three words. Tell me more. Tell me more. I don't understand. I need you to tell me more about that. All right? So that's the first one, exercising compassion. The second one, embracing the pain. I think it's fascinating to me that it's the marginalized man in this story, right? It's the hated one in this story who has compassion. The ones who were supposed to, it was their job to have compassion. They don't. It's the marginalized man who has compassion because pain is often the pathway to our compassion. You see, the priest and the Levite allow their privilege to blind them to reality. They pass by on the other side. And as a white man from Iowa, I can relate to the blinding power of privilege. I had a friend this last week, um, she's on staff with InterVarsity, lives in North Carolina, was watering her friend's garden, and police officers showed up with their guns drawn at her because she was watering a friend's garden. And they thought, you don't belong here, so they show up not with a question, but with guns drawn. Her name is Charlene. And as a ma- in my experience, I'm like, mm, that's never happened to me. I can't imagine that happening. So I have, a, I have a temptation in that spot to ignore it or be like, I don't believe you. You must have done something to deserve that. But that's not what the Samaritan does. That's not what we need to do. His pain becomes the engine of his embrace. He doesn't just throw money at a distance and be like, hey, I hope you sort of take care of that thing. He gets his hands very dirty, right? Taking care of the man who is beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. He embraces the dirty, bloody work of love. So one of the times that I experienced this in my own life, when I was a senior in college, I went through a bout with depression that was one of the darkest periods of my life. And what I needed in that space I didn't need anybody to explain what was happening to me. I didn't need anybody to fix it. I needed somebody to embrace me in that space. That's part of what Esther talked about as well. I needed somebody to sit with me, be with me, grieve with me in this space. And I needed friends who could handle my pain, who didn't just respond with sort of quick fixes or easy solutions. I needed somebody who could embrace my pain. So being a neighbor, friends, means embracing pain, and it means embracing it through steadfast presence instead of easy solutions. It means saying, I am with you, and I'm so sorry that that happened. I'm with you, and I'm sorry that that happened. I'm willing to stand with you in this kind of place. And the third thing is this, advocating with others, right? The Samaritan actually spends his resources on behalf of the man that he found on the side of the road with the innkeeper. And I think this is a fascinating part of this story, right? Because the story moves from an isolated roadside to a very populated inn. You see, compassion often begins in private, but neighboring always goes public. Compassion often begins in private, but neighboring always goes public. And I had to wonder, as I was studying the story, I was like, why is this part about the innkeeper in there? Why doesn't the Good Samaritan just like, you know, help the guy on the side of the road and gets him all better and then sends him on his way or takes him to his own house? Or what, what, what's with the innkeeper? Why does he even need to show up? Here's why. I think true neighboring is always intended to be contagious. The fullest expression of neighboring isn't a wheel where relationships are always connected to me. The fullest expression of neighboring is a web of relationships. 
where every part is connected to every other part. True neighboring isn't like Facebook, it's family, right? True neighboring isn't Facebook, it's family. And here's what I really love about this story. This is the best part. Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the Samaritan, right? Jesus is the Samaritan who comes down to exercise compassion. Jesus is the Samaritan who draws near to embrace our wounds, and in so doing, he reconciles us to himself, right? He restores relationship between us and God. But also, Jesus is the Samaritan who commands the innkeeper to look after him until I return. Jesus doesn't just reconcile us to God, he reconciles us to one another, right? The Samaritan cares that the innkeeper needs to care about the man on the side of the road too. It's not enough for just the Samaritan to care about the man on the side of the road. He wants them to care about each other. So Jesus' invitation to his followers is not only be reconciled with God, amen, 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 but also be reconcilers with one another. Don't just be neighbors, but make neighbors. Don't just be a neighbor, make neighbors. So I wonder where God is inviting you to make neighbors on campus tonight. Where is he inviting you to be a peacemaker? Where do you inhabit a community that lives in enmity and strife and hostility with another community? What might it look like for you to build, a, for you to be the bridge, to make neighbors in that spot? Whether it's between groups or maybe you, I, with enough people in this room, there have to be so many relationships that you're surrounded by that you're like, man, these two are fighting, Right? This friend and this friend are fighting. What does it mean to be a neighbor and make neighbors in that situation and help them come back together to be a peacemaker? Amen? So here's, here's how I want to respond tonight. We're going to give a little bit of space for prayer, and then we're going to have some worship after that. And what we're going to do is I'm going to leave a little bit of individual space, and there's going to be sort of two movements of this. The first one is I want to give a space to repent and confess places of hostility that we have toward other individuals or toward other groups of people, to be honest about the hatred and the enmity and the hostility that we carry, I want to invite us to be reconciled with one another in that space, okay? And then I'm going to invite us to intercede for the unity of Jesus' body that he died for as a testimony to this world, to be reconcilers. And the way this is going to work, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds on your own to sort of do business with God. Then I'm going to pray on behalf of our community, and then we're going to repeat this phrase that's going to be on the screen, I believe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your work at the cross unites us let nothing else separate us. Amen? Amen? Okay, so will you pray with me? And I want to invite you to turn to God right now in a place of confession and repentance and acknowledge before him the places that you need to come clean, that you need to be reconciled to other people. So take a moment with that. Jesus, just like we said at the beginning, we are so good at making enemies and we stink at making neighbors. Would you have mercy on us, Lord? Would you have mercy on us as individuals? Would you have mercy on us as a people, as your church, for the ways that we failed to reconcile, the ways that we failed to be neighbors with other people? God, we're sorry for that. We need you to come and have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. Pray with me together, friends. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your work at the cross unites us Let nothing else separate us. 
And now in the same sort of way, I want to invite you to intercede for the unity of Jesus' body in the church for the sake of the world, okay? So take just a little bit of time on your own and ask Jesus to do what he promised to do and make us one, to bring unity to us, all right? So go ahead and pray on your own. Lord Jesus, you prayed that your people would be one just like you and the Father were one, and we cry out for that, God. We pray for unity. I pray that unity would fall on this room and on this campus, God, on this state, on this region, and on this nation. Lord, would you have mercy, and would you unify your people for the sake of the world? Pray with me now, friends. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your work at the cross unites us. Let nothing else separate us.